Welcome to episode number 16 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we break away from our normal format for a feature interview with professional glider pilot coach and instructor G. Dale. Volume 3 of his series entitled The Soaring Engine is now out. This volume focuses on human performance and gliding. Whether you're a novice or an experienced cross-country pilot, you will learn something from this interview. That's on episode number 16 of The Thermal. G. Dale has pretty much seen and done it all when it comes to gliding. Whether it's instructing pilots on how to fly wave in New Zealand or competing in Europe, he's done it. He's also had his share of close calls. In an earlier episode of The Thermal, I spoke to G about Volumes 1 and 2 of The Soaring Engine. Now, Volume 3 is available through his website at thesoaringengine.com. Earlier this summer, I spoke to G in Serres, France, where he's been getting in as much flying as he can. Hello, G. Uh, nice to have you back on The Thermal. Well, hello, Harry. It's good to talk to you. Now, before we get into Volume 3 of The Soaring Engine, talk to me a little bit about your, your COVID summer and gliding. How's that been going? Uh, it's pretty, pretty chaotic. All, all the competitions got shut down. We got locked down at the airfield. We couldn't turn a wheel. We were sitting underneath beautiful skies. It was um, kind of annoying. We were able to go cycling. We, we, we did miles and miles on the bikes under beautiful soaring skies. I wouldn't like to comment on on, on government policies, but um, that's back in the, that's back in the UK you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That's back in the UK. Oh, I can't get to New Zealand. I can't even get there. They mm. won't let me in the country. Right. Uh, we should we should be able to get in the country because we're residents. But but um, they're actually queuing up the residents and citizens as well. So that's hopeless. Anyway, yeah, we we've had half a summer and no competitions, but it's beginning to loosen up a bit now. Um, I'm in France at the moment flying in the mountains and we've got a, a, a sort of a, a light-hearted pre-worlds next week at Mont-Luçon for the Club 15 standard class. So the British team are all going to be there. It's it's almost like a pre-worlds friendly, if right. that makes any sense, because they can't really do an official comp. So that's going to be real interesting. And everybody's been just frantic to fly, so you can imagine and and how's it working out with COVID? Is it the the masks and distances and that kind of stuff? Uh, honestly, most of the people I'm working with are young enough and fit enough that it's not going to hurt them. Mm-hmm. And um, a great number of the people I'm working with. Um, I say working with, you know, my peers and the people I coach and the people I fly with, team members, they understand the nature of risk. My summer has been a lot safer because I didn't go to any competitions. Right, right. You know, 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 the nature of the risk, yes, some people are in a high-risk group. Most of us aren't. The, The statistics are quite clear. Um, most of us, it doesn't really matter. And then you've got this thing of social responsibility. You know, you've got to protect the people that are vulnerable. Nothing of what I've said is to make light of the fact that there are a substantial number of people who have been truly screwed up by this. But, you know, half of of 1% of the population is a very small risk factor, especially if you're not in the vulnerable groups. On the other hand, 
if you piled up half of 1% of the population as a, as a pile of dead people, it's, it's a, lot. a huge number of people. Yeah. So it really focuses the mind on the nature of statistics and the nature of risk and the nature of public responsibility. And, and um, some people are quite steady and some people are just bouncing around like pinballs, not really sure not really on it, not really able to um, sort of have a stable attitude to the whole thing. And that for me is, that for me is fascinating. So that, that's just fascinating. That's a good lead in to volume three of the Soaring Engine, because if I understand it correctly, it's got to, a lot to do with human factors, safety, risk management. What is in volume three that wasn't in volumes one and two? Okay, well, volume one and two were all about how the sky works. You know, how how you, how the ridge works about the dead area at the bottom of the ridge the shear at the top of the ridge you know the difference between a knife edge and a round edge how thermals work the patterns in the sky then wave and convergence they're all about the movement of the air in in, in the sky and, and where you should put the glider to 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 climb really well and where you should put the glider to be safe um it's all external it's all micro meteorology uh, volume three is about how you fly the glider it's about it's about how the glider works in the sky. That is essentially the speed flying theory. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, no McCready speed to fly. But speed flying theory is it's pretty deep. It goes a long way, and um, there's there's a big section on that. And and it isn't all about you know how you have to follow the speed director. That's not what we do at all. So that's kind of interesting. And then um, there's uh, there's quite a big section on yes human factors um thinking i call it how you think in the air how you make decisions probably the most important thing is to understand that soaring is a performance in inverted commas um and when you're in the middle of a performance in inverted commas you can't stop you can't park the glider and get out the manual you can't put the handbrake on you can't go and get a cup of tea you can't back off and think about it you have to keep going bang 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 and if you make a mistake then it gets harder and the nature of performance um and human factors is is really interesting talk about the performance arousal curve the dodson yerkes curve which was mm, sort of mooted Dodson and Yerkes put that idea together at about the time that the Wright brothers discovered flying, which is singularly appropriate because the put, performance... Put, put that in a nutshell for me. Very that, close. That, that concept you just okay. mentioned. Give that to me in a way my mother will understand. It's physiological. The way your mind handles workload, it's a physiological thing, right? It's, mm -hmm. We're not software. We're, we're animals. So to give you an analogy, if you think about the wing, way the wing works, if you move the stick back a little bit, increase the angle of attack, it makes more lift. Move the stick back, back further, it makes more lift. Move the stick back further. You get to a point where it doesn't make more lift. And when it doesn't make more lift, i.e. you hit the stall, really interesting things might happen. You know, the glider might mush, it might shake a bit, the wing might go down, the nose might go down. Or if you do it in a tight turn, the thing will flick upside down and point at the ground and start spinning, which is, whoa, a really interesting moment. So when you load up your brain in a performance situation, you get a similar kind of behavior. You load the brain a bit, 
you think hard, stuff happens. Load the brain a bit more, think hard, stuff happens. You get into the flow situation that you've probably heard of, you know, when everything's great and you're performing really, really well. That's like the wing making lots of lift in the thermal. You load the brain a bit more, and this normally happens when you fail, when something goes wrong, when you either make a mistake or, or you're just unlucky, which happens in soaring. Anxiety creeps in. When anxiety creeps in, the brain starts to tip over into the fight or flight routines, into a different way of operating. And that's like the stall. You have a number of pre-stall symptoms in the glider. You have a number of pre-fail symptoms um, you know, in your brain. You know, you get tight mm-hmm. on the controls. You stop looking out. Sure. You start tunnel vision. hearing stuff. Yeah. Tunnel vision. And then if you take it right over the edge, the mind crashes. When somebody spins the glider into a, fi- into a field landing or spins the glider off the winch launch or shoves the stick so hard forward in a spin recovery as they turn the thing almost upside down or fails to round out and shoves it into the ground, when people do that, they've crashed their minds. The as mind well as the glider. <laughs> the glider. Yeah. yeah. And then the glider crashes. Uh, this is a super important thing to understand. Now, now so let, let me interrupt for a sec. So volume that. three, if I read volume three, am I going to learn how to think better when I'm flying my glider? You're going to learn, you're going to learn what the problem is. Mm-hmm. And once you've learned what the problem is, that gives you the perspective to perhaps be able to improve it. But there's, there's one or two tools that I, I mentioned in, in the book for improving um, your performance in, in that situation, one or two tools. But they have to be practiced. Right. The main thing is not being ignorant. I, I had PS, PST, PTSD for ages following uh, one or two really nasty incidents, and, and I was really screwed up. Pers- personal so experiences is, that you've had. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, you can come back from that. You don't need therapy. You don't, you don't need counseling. You need to understand. And if you understand, you can work through it. Mm-hmm. And it's rather the same way with the training and, and with the date, certainly dealing with the performance arousal curve. You need to understand, if you can understand, there are ways of working through it. And there are contributing factors. The performance arousal curve is one part of the human factors game. But it's... <laughs> It's the foundation, but there are other things we do um, in our decision-making, especially when we're looking at probabilities. Um, We have systemic errors in decision-making when it comes to probabilities. Which which goes back to before you even get in the cockpit, right? Yeah, yeah. So let me just say, if people really understood probability, there would be no such thing as cigarettes. There will be no such thing as casinos. People wouldn't bet on the horses. People, people, there wouldn't be a lottery. Right. You know, those are stupidities. And, and those are, those are, don't get me wrong, I'm not really criticizing people that do that stuff because that's human nature. That's what we do. But if you understand probability, all of those things are just completely fallacious things to be involved with. When we make decisions in flying, we don't make very good decisions about probability. I, I cite a couple of books that, that will point people in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so, so look, that is the that is the thinking section 
of the soaring engine. And um, it's essentially sports psychology, but it, it's coming from a different direction from and, most. And, and this is per- personal experience, because as I understand it, you've had a lot of personal experience, including having to involuntarily leave a glider. Yes, yeah. Well, that wasn't the one that gave me PTSD. The one that gave me PTSD was watching at 22 years old, watching a couple of guys spinning in a motion and hit the ground, like literally just in front of us. We were stepping back so it didn't hit us. Yeah. um, uh, Yeah, and I was standing with my mate who's a medic. I said, you go to the rack, I'll go to the phone. Because this was 40 years ago. Right, right. And and even, even last night, last night, I woke up at two o'clock with a really nasty nightmare. Mm-hmm. From from that, I get telephone nightmares. I'm sitting here with a telephone. I get telephone nightmares where I can't phone out because that's what happened. You know, I ran to the phone. I was shaking so badly I couldn't dial the number and phone out. You know, Most those of us have thing. been in the gliding world long enough for a number of decades. You know, we've all lost friends and and seen accidents. Most of us have anyway. And it can be weird the way it gets you. Like I said, I've always hated telephones. I have telephone nightmares if I'm feeling tense. I'll have a dream where I can't get through on the phone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've been doing that for 40 years. Right. 40 years. It doesn't go away. So, you know, um, yeah, the way, way people's minds work is just fascinating. So how, did you, get, so how anyway, did you get over this? How did you get back into flying, becoming the... The, the world-renowned coach that you are, and, and how, did, how did you keep going? How did you not hang up your boots at that point? That happened so early. The accident that I watched when I was 22, 23, I've been gliding for a couple of years. I had a K6. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know it had screwed me up. Mm-hmm. But about a year after that, I started to get scared of flying, and I was, you know, I'd have waves when I was just scared in the airplane. I remember sitting there with a student, I was up at 5,000 feet looking down and thinking, I shouldn't be scared, I can do this. There's no danger here. I might as well be driving a car, this is as safe as houses. Why am I scared? But I was. Right. And I'd have waves and waves of that. You know, I'd have a summer and it was really bad and then I'd have a summer where it wasn't there and I'd have a summer when it was really bad. And eventually it went away. And- um, But you kept persevering. Well, I don't really think there's anything wrong with fear. You just deal with it. Right. If you want to deal with it. If you want to do, but I didn't understand. I just didn't understand. When I, when I did learn about it, another friend of mine had a very nasty accident. He was flying the, he was flying the sailplane that I normally worked in. I'd done oh, over a thousand hours in the back of this geodiscus. And him and his student, they spun it into the hillside, wiped off the nose, killed the student, severely injured him. And I went up, to retrieve the, well, I went up to um, retrieve him, not the student, because he was dead. Um, but, um, you know, the student was lying dead on the hillside, all curled up like a mouse. And mm-hmm. um, my, my friend was sitting there in the remains of what was my cockpit, with the instrument panel wiped off. And, um, you know, my um, my computer and my map and my cushion with blood on it. And, and that really got to me. That really screwed me up. For a couple of seasons after that, you know, every time I was flying in the mountains, every time I was near the ground, I was just twitchy ass. No one was handling the airplane, but when the student was flying it, you know, you, you know how you go over an edge in a thermal? Mm-hmm. Bang, and I just thought the glider was going to fall out from under me all the time, just all the time. And I knew what the problem was then. I was old enough to have worked out what the problem was. I, knew, I just 
So, you know. So, yeah, this gets back to thinking. So how did you how did you alter your thinking to become a, a safe, proficient pilot that, you know, you are? I did a little bit of work. I did a little bit of work on, um, I think you call it NLP. And I tried I tried a little bit of work with a hypnotist. That was interesting. None of it made the slightest bit of difference. Eventually, I, honestly, I was committed to doing it. Eventually, I just got bored with feeling like that and got on with it. Mm-hmm. You just get, I just got past it. So, you know. But you, recog- but you recognized there was an issue that somehow had to be dealt with and you had to move on. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, completely. It was it was obvious what had happened. I remember flying with my partner Annie, and we were in a geodesk. So I was sitting in the front, and we were down below the peaks in some gnarly gully somewhere in really rough air. And Annie was handling the glider. I was getting really bounced around, and I just said, I just said, I can't do this anymore. Just take me home. I'm done. <laughs> Which is really unusual, really unusual. So you know that's gone away now. I'm fine. Funny enough. When I jumped out the glider, well, this I had is, to you had a midair, right? Yeah, I was taken roughly and surprisingly from behind, and that's another story. Um, <laughs> okay, I don't recommend it. Um, at only twenty-two hundred feet, and I got the parachute open at about six hundred feet, having got whacked by the canopy as it came off, and I, I lost five or six seconds during the be you know, kind of lights out. I came to upside down with my hands dangling above my head. In inverted flight, woke up, thought. Christ, was your parachute open? No, 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 no. The glider went straight down, and then I got the canopy off, and it hit me in the head on the way past. Wow! And then the next thing I remember, the glider was upside down because by that time the tail had broken off, and it was upside down, sort of gliding along in a steep descent with the tail sort of half off it, um, and I opened my eyes. And I recognize the picture because when you roll an airplane on a on a bright sunny blue day there's quite a visual signature for being upside down you know, in the shadow looking up at the sky it's a bit like swimming underneath the hull of a sailing boat you know there's mm-hmm. quite a yeah. distinct visual look to it so I recognized the picture I thought crushed I'm upside down got rid of the straps and got out and opened the chute but um yeah anyway so I got the chute open at 600 feet swung underneath it a few times landed I actually passed out again before I landed I got a real whack in the head and um, so lucky, very, very lucky, came to, got out the glider, opened the chute, swung around a bit, passed out. And, and they found me 15 minutes later, face down in the field, unconscious. I didn't land conscious. I was absolutely out. So that was interesting. Anyway. And um, this is just a few years yeah. ago? 2012. Mm-hmm. 2012 it was, the Olympic year, out of Cambridge. I've taken off out of Granson's Lodge, but I've never landed there. Um, so... Here's the weird thing, PTSD. You know, if you're talking about PTSD, I remember they, they strapped me to a board, strapped my head down because I thought I had neck injuries, put shunts in my arms and uh, dragged me off D-Dar, D-Dar to hospital and stuck me in a scanner. And I'm lying in this scanner with it banging and whirring around my head. And I'm lying there thinking, hmm, Strifenator 201 the bell. That's what I'll get next. Replace the DG. I'll have enough money. <laughs> and I got I got a two I I got a Lebel two a one B and uh, got it strifenated. It was beautiful, beautiful thing. And I'd come last in the nationals. Well, actually last but one because the guy that hit me I beat him at least. Um, so I came last but one in the nationals. So that's it. Out of the team, out of the running, bloody blah. 
getting pretty old, you know, it needs to requalify and get up there. So I worked like fury to get the glider ready and to get up there. And apparently, I was just a complete pain in the butt. You mean a cr- <laughs> crank, cranky, grumpy, yeah. unpleasant yeah. individual? I, I, I was an absolute uh, I was just awful. A completely self-centered. No time for anybody. No time for anything. No time. No generosity. No, no, no sweat of either. Just, I bloody did it. When I got the glider, I got to the nationals, I qualified, I went to the next competition. So I did it. But a, a friend of mine took me on one side and he said, gee, you've got PTSD. You need to think about it. And I said, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just getting stuff done. I wasn't in slight bit scared. It didn't, didn't really frighten me at all. Um, and, um, which sounds weird, but it was frightening at the time, but not afterwards, because it wasn't exactly a surprise. You know what we do mm-hmm. in, in, in world-level flying, national-level flying. You know what we do. We know what the risks are. It's not a surprise. Um, but he said, yeah, he said, you've got PTSD. I said, no, you're nuts. And, he said, and this guy was ex-police force. Canberra Vice Squad, basically. Canberra, motorcycle cops, guns. Right, fire, so a, a, man, a man who's experienced things in life. Yeah, kind of a kind of a butch bloke's world to be living in, and and he said, no, you got PTSD. You need to sort yourself out. And you did. Nearly cost me my long term relationship. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah. I, and was I'm writing the book was the volume book. three part of that? Ah, oh, no, that's really a side issue. That's that's just work. Honestly, it's just work. I mean, we're talking about PTSD because I find it fascinating because you, when you're coaching people. You deal with fear mm-hmm. because, you know, I mean, I'm flying in the mountains, getting banged around by rough thermals below the rocks. It's, it's nothing if it's not scary. So, so, you know, you're working with people that might be nervous or might not. They might have a problem or they might not. So that is really part of coaching is to make people feel comfortable in the airplane and understand that there is a good reason for being scared sometimes. But no, PTSD is um, it's, it's not covered in the book. It's not really relevant. But, but you do but talk I, I, about a way of thinking. So, I mean, obviously your experiences in the gliding world and some of these accidents you've experienced go into the book and how we should be thinking in the cockpit. Is that right? Yeah, well, the, the performance arousal curve is interesting. And you have to remember that it's physiological. So it's chemistry. Mm-hmm. It's chemistry. You can't beat it by thinking. You have you have to do it in other ways. It's much more subtle. You can't. It's like you can't think yourself out of depression, right? You can't think yourself out of depression. You can't think yourself out of being fat. You have to do it in other ways. You can't think yourself into exercising. You, you have to do it in other ways. It's more subtle to deal with to deal with your character. It's a much mm-hmm. more subtle thing. Um, and I did look quite. I did quite hard at. You know, our, our thought processes. If you if you read Daniel Kahneman's book, Kahneman and Tversky did a lot of research on decision making. And uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote a great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is which is kind of paralleled by um, Blink. Um, who wrote Blink? Malcolm Gladwell wrote Blink. Yeah, yeah. Which From this part of the world. Kind of a light yeah. version. It kind of p- picks out a few isolated parts of Kahneman's work and, and points them out. Once you start to understand that in most of daily life, 
like this entire conversation I'm having with you, right? I'm shooting from the hip. I'm sat down and scripted this. I haven't planned it. I've had a couple of gins and just stream of consciousness, really. It's what we do most of the time. Yeah, you know what if you're talking about. You, I'm not asking you to talk to yeah. me about baking bread. Yeah. If, if, if I say to you, what's the capital of France? You can't not think of Paris, right? You can't not think of Paris. It's, it's obvious. If I say to you, what's, um, what's, uh, what's the altimeter set level for flight levels? You know it's 1013. You don't have to think about it. You know it's 1013.2. You just know it. Or 29-point-sunning millibars. Inches, if you use um, inches. You just know it. If I say to you, what's 247 times 22 minus 6? You can do it. But you have to sit down and think. That's a different kind of thinking. Yeah. And most of, the, most of us live entirely in the world of quick thinking. And the world of quick thinking is subject to lots of errors, lots and lots of stupidities. So, so gee, there, is, there are a lot of glider pilots who are going to be listening to this interview. And they're going to be thinking, what am I, I'm going to read the book, obviously, read your, your next volume. But is there one little bit of advice on how we think as glider pilots that you can give us as a takeaway that we should be practicing or doing to make us safer and more competent. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say regard the way your brain works as the way a wing works. If you pull the stick back too far, it'll stop working. Mm -hmm. If you load your mind up too far, it'll stop working. And the way to avoid doing that, the way to avoid getting in a situation where you start to fail and your mind crashes is currency, practice, pre-figuring what you're doing, pre-briefing, pre-studying what you're doing. You look around at the airspace during, before you do a task, for instance. You read the rules before you go to a competition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Preparation, study before you fly. So you've already thought through the question and you've already got the answer before you have to think of it in flight. You know, that's really that interesting because I, I used to make documentary films and I did one about sort of escaping death and I spoke to people who'd gotten out of airplane crashes and ship disasters and everything else. But the takeaway of all the survivors was the people that had a plan ahead of time in the middle of the night when the hotel caught fire, where they turned left or right or how many seats from the exit. So those are the people that survived, the people with a plan. Yeah, go, go now. Yeah, absolutely, go now. Do you remember the, when the tsunami hit and you saw all those horrible videos of people wandering out following the water out and looking at the fish. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, if you'd been there, if I'd been there, I'd have been sprinting in the opposite direction. I know about tsunamis. I knew before that. I was just going to say you that was the knowledge. Before that. Yeah. You run. You've got to know. So, yes, I, you sit on the airplane and you go, yeah, three seats forward, there's the door. Six seats backwards, there's the door. You know, you, you go in the hotel room, you're out the room, turn right, there's the exit. Yeah, completely. So so when the glider came apart on me, um, yeah, I did all the right things. Because, because you'd already, already thought them Right. You were, you were yeah. prepared. But, yeah. but if, you, if you back off from the emergency situation, if you back off and you think about decision-making in flight, let's imagine you... Let's imagine you're a student pilot, and if you're a student pilot flying in the UK, you take off in the airfield, you take off on QFE. You know, your altimeter is 600 feet, you're 600 feet above the ground, not mm -hmm. above sea level. So if you have a piece of airspace, say, 
5,500 feet above sea level, which is above your airfield, and you've got 600 feet out and uh, you, you've got zero at 600 feet QFE, how high can you climb? Well, what you have to do is to take 600 off 5,5 and you get 4,9, but you can't do that when you're climbing in a thermal when you're a beginner. So the instructor says to the student, if you're flying on QFE, don't go above 4,800 feet on the altimeter. Bang, it's there. He doesn't have to think. That's what I mean by pre-figuring, pre-briefing. In, in, in aviation, we brief, you know, frequency is this, alternate frequency is this. This is the turn point, this is the turn point, this is the airspace. You don't have to think about it when you're doing it because you already know. Mm-hmm. I went up to the north today, up the parkour, and, uh, not the parkour, sorry, up the Vercor and um, the Chartreuse ridges. And um, before I did that this morning, I went on Google Earth and I looked at the strips looked at the fields you could land in, looked at the airfields you could land in, looked at the field landing book. You've got Chalaiser and you've got um, Grenoble. Um, there's a little field at Grenoble, I forget the name of it. Um, big airfields you can get an aerotow out of, and you've got a number of strips. So, you know, what's happy as Larry going up there? Because if it goes wrong, you know where you're going to go. You're right, going to go down that side of the ridge, and if it goes wrong, you'll stick it in that airfield and have a tow home. Easy. But if Gee. you hadn't thought it through, you'd be looking at the map and thinking, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Before, before so, I let you go, there, there have been at least half a dozen glider pilots in the last couple of weeks who've died in Europe, everything from mid-air collisions to, to stall spin situations. In, in the big picture, you've been all over the world, glider pilots everywhere, you know, you've interacted. Are, are we as glider pilots becoming complacent? What, what do you think is going on? Oh, I don't know. Is the accident rate getting worse? Yeah, I don't that's, know. That's the question. One in every ten thousand launches or so is an injury, injury or injury or fatality. I think it's and and, and mountain flying is quite a lot more dangerous. We we had a lot of accidents operating out, operating out of a Marima. Um Mountain flying is significantly dangerous. Uh, I yeah. even if you're good. Even if you're good, um, flying in busy competitions is just dangerous from the mid-air thing, from the mid-air point of view. It is not possible for the ordinary human being to keep track of all the targets. It's just not. You know, we go one, two, three, many. Yeah. You know, you're in a thermal with eight or nine people all going around just underneath cloud base and another couple of gliders fly through the thermal and somebody drops out a cloud above you. Oh, it's, it's just a risky thing to do. It's, it's, that, that is, it's just dangerous. There's no two ways about it. Um, as far as the, the stall spin accidents and, the, you know, there are some idiotic, some idiotic mistakes. People have some pretty stupid accidents that are entirely down to their own mismanagement. That's really down to training. And unfortunately, we don't operate. Generally, in Europe, there's not much professionalism in the training. Um, most of the training is done by volunteers. Most of the accidents that happen during training are accidents that instructors also have. They have the same kind of accidents. Right. But that's the you nature know, so of the beast, right? I mean, most 99% of gliding instruction is on a voluntary basis, right? Yes. 
so the type of in, the type of accidents instructors have is the same type of accidents as their students have. In fact, quite often the instructor takes over and crashes the glider. If you look at the if you look at the accident record, whereas if you look at professional aviation, if you look at flying instructors, um, the sort of accidents that flying instructors have tend not to be the sort of accidents that their students would have. Mm. You know, their students might heavy land in an airplane, but the flying instructor might fly into do control flight into terrain going somewhere you know different kind of accidents yeah. it it's <laughs> gliding's an amateur sport and it's quite a dangerous one yes so yeah. what, whatever people say about driving to the airfield being the most dangerous part of going gliding nah, no no it isn't it no. just isn't stay awake out there gee before i let you go let's end on a positive note let's let's talk a little bit about how beautiful soaring is and uh you know your 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 memories up there in the cockpit. I mean, it really is. You keep going well, back for ask. more. <laughs> you did ask. Yeah, I know. Oh, I, yeah, but it's well. important to talk about these things. But it's uh, it's absolutely important to talk. But at the same time, that's the the risk we're willing to take for the beauty and experience of flight. Yeah. Well, look, I'm doing I'm doing a lot of cycling. Right. It's really easy to kill yourself on a bicycle. As well. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. really. I'm I'm cycling in the mountains. You know, you climb up to a coal, you put your head down, you put your bum behind the seat, and, and, you, and you get your chest on the bars, and you go like fury down the hill, swish, swash, swish around the corners. You don't have to get it very... I, I, I went down this bit of road the other day, and I thought, whoa, if I go off the side there, I'm not going to touch the ground for 100 yards. Yeah, and your L over D's oh, not no. that good either. Not on a bike, no. No. <laughs> no. no, but, uh, well... What else would you do but soaring? It's just, we went, where did we go today? We went over the top of the pit to and, and we went around the Akran, and we went up to Branson, the thunderstorms, and then we went all the way down to the gorge that they'd done and looked at the blue water and the little pedalos on the gorge out in the blue sky there, cruising along at 8,000 feet in the ash, doing like 70 knots, just, just whispering along out of the convection. And then Beautiful. all the way back north up to Grenoble, over the top of Grenoble. You can't normally fly over big cities, but you can fly over the top of Grenoble, up to the top of the Chartres, and then, huh, final glide, bang, bang, bang. It was just a great day out. You've got a smile on your face thinking back. about it, right? Oh, what else would you do? Yeah. What else would you do? In a world, in a world where you can go flying, you know, people say, why do you go flying? And as you think... <laughs> In a world where yep. you can fly, why on earth would you not? Yes, I agree completely. <laughs> Gee, listen, it's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you again. Uh, I'll put out a, a link on the site where people can find Volume 3 of the Soaring Engine. And uh, I hope you have a nice day soaring t tomorrow. And uh, as usual, stay safe and fly uh, your ass off. <laughs> Yes, we will. Well, we've got another day flying here, then shut down, and then we're up to the competition at Mont Luzon. Okay. And my teammates, my teammates for the next club class worlds, are 27 years old. Is that Mr. Brattle? Um, well, look, we've got we've got Tom Ascot, who's I think he's 27, and he's current European champion and uh, and ex ex junior champion. And, uh, and yes, Jake, who's the current junior world's champion in the club class, so, and me. So we got 25, 27, and 61. <laughs> so we'll Look, that's fun. Good for you. 
Oh, I'm just really enjoying working with the boys. They're they're shit hot, and um, I have to really run to keep up with them. But Good. Um, it'll keep you. It'll keep you young. Yeah, well, it, it certainly does. We just did a coaching session with the junior team. Oh. Uh, not the junior team, I should say, the junior squad. Okay. Um, again, in, in the central France. And, and that was just great. So much enthusiasm, and they're sharp as knives. It's, it's, it's really encouraging. So there are some good things coming through. That, that, um, that particular bunch of people is just heaven to work with. Anyway, Gee, so next yeah. week will be fun. Then back to the mountains for the rest of the season. Thank you very much for a, a bit of a well-earned rest. Sounds fabulous. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk soon. Stay safe out there, guys. Okay. Cheers. Bye. G. Dale spoke to me from Ceres, France. Volume 3 of The Soaring Engine is available through his website, thesoaringengine.com. That's thesoaringengine.com. That's it for episode number 16 of The Thermal. I'll be back again later this fall with episode number 17. Thanks for centering The Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate, and fly safe.